The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Welcome to My Life in Books. In this series, The Telegraph's Laura Powell interviews Britain's favourite novelists about their lives, careers and the three books that mean most to them. This week, our guest is Sebastian Folkes. Born in Berkshire in 1953, he began his writing career as a journalist, including a stint at the Daily Telegraph, before publishing his first novel, The Girl at the Lion Door, in 1989. He's gone on to write over a dozen more novels, including Charlotte Grey, Engleby and Human Traces, but is perhaps best known for Birdsong, a war novel and family saga which moves between the trenches of World War I and late 1970s England, and which consistently appears on surveys of the nation's favourite books. His latest work, Paris Echo, is set in contemporary France and follows two outsiders as they navigate the city, their steps echoed by testimonials from women who lived there under German occupation during the Second World War. Folks is married with three grown children and lives in London. Sebastian Folks, welcome to the Telegraph Books podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us here in the paper's offices in central London. I'm just wondering, as a former Telegraph journalist yourself, how it feels stepping back into the newsroom? Well, it's completely unrecognisable. I mean, it's quiet and air-conditioned and people looking at large silver um, computer screens. Um, When I worked on the Telegraph as a journalist quite a long time ago now, in the early 80s, Um, It was hot, um, unconditioned, and there was the sound of typewriters uh, being pounded by fat men smoking cigarettes using only two fingers. But was there sort of free-flowing whiskey as well in sort of clouds of cigarette smoke in the air? There was a lot of smoke that you weren't really supposed to drink inside the building, but there was no problem with going to the pub, which was literally next door. So people would start going to the pub about 11 in the morning. And then at about 6.30 in the evening, you'd hear the rumble downstairs underground of the printing presses beginning to start up. So it was, it was considerably, it was so much noisier than this. So newspapers were in your blood, really, with, you know, your, your grandfather as well. Was he a sports reporter on The Telegraph? My grandfather was, yes. He, he worked for The Morning Post, uh, reporting on rugby and golf in particular, both of which he played to a very high standard himself. During the, during the Second World War, there was a shortage of war reporters for the paper, and he volunteered being a sort of hearty outdoor kind of guy. He'd fought himself in the First World War and survived, um, despite, uh, apart from some gassing. But he was with the American troops in 1944 going into Germany, and they were crossing uh, the Rhine at Remagen, and he was killed by by a German sniper, Um, I think partly because he was very tall and he disdained to take cover, and um, so I never met him. And was it knowing that and sort of his legacy that made you follow his footsteps in those early days? Not really. Um, I, he, he died long before I was born. He, he wasn't a big figure in, in my life, really. My mother had a rather sad little scrapbook, uh, pictures of him and uh, little quotations in the, uh, from the Daily Telegraph, American troops describing him as Peter the Lion, a very brave man. Um, but uh, I didn't know my grandmother either because my mother was estranged from her. So that side of the family didn't sort of loom very large. And my my sort of journey into journalism was much more accidental, really. Um, I wanted to, to be a novelist from the age of about 14. And uh, journalism really was as close as I could get because it did at least involve typing. And so it was <laughs> while I was trying to um, find out how to be a novelist, really, that I began to be a journalist. 
I mean, you rose through the ranks from the Telegraph and you went on to become deputy editor of The Independent on Sunday. I know you've left, sort of must be about what, 35 years ago now, but did that was that a difficult transition, leaving it behind? Uh, yes, leaving, I mean, journalism, I... Having said I drifted into it, I then embraced it enthusiastically and I worked hard at it and I thoroughly enjoyed it. My time at the Telegraph, particularly the Sunday Telegraph, where I was a feature writer, was very, very enjoyable. It was a great paper to work for. It sold a lot of copies in those days. And it was run by a sort of politburo of, uh, a sort of benign politburo of elderly men uh, who looked after me very, very kindly and gave me lots of good things to do. And I had great colleagues. Are you a well-behaved journalist? Yes, I I was. I mean, I, I... I drank a lot, but so, so did everyone. But I didn't sort of fall about drunk. I didn't have a sort of drink issue. I mean, just that that was the culture. So going back to sort of the transition from journalism into writing, was that was that quite difficult? I spoke to a novelist recently who, like yourself, was a successful journalist and now is a very, very successful novelist. And she said that it was such a great transition that she actually needed to go into therapy afterwards in quite a serious way because it was just such a different world and a different life that she was living. I mean, I'm guessing it, it sounds like you adapted very well and you've obviously been very successful since. But was it was it a tricky time? Well, no, it was an absolute delight because by the time I left journalism, I, I was no longer being a feature writer, which is the job, I, my ideal job in journalism. I'd become an editor and I was spending all day in meetings with people with whom I fundamentally disagreed. And the sort of energy level was low and it was just a drain on one's patience. And one, you know, I was there for 12 hours a day. And so I just couldn't wait to get out, really. And I had actually published two books by the time I left. Um, my second book, The Girl at the Lyon d'Or, came out in um, 89 when I was literary editor of The Independent. That was a good job, literary editor, but it was the deputy editor, was the, that was the life-sapping job, really. Um, so I was delighted to get away, and finally I had what I'd always wanted, which was a room of my own, time on my hands, no telephone calls, no meetings, just me and my imagination, and the whole world passed present and future to write about. And for the first five years, I was simply sort of delirious with joy, actually. Every morning I woke up laughing. So we're also here today to talk about the books that mean the most to you in your life. And the first one that you've chosen is one that you first read at 16. Yes. And although it does, it seems like an unusual choice for a teenage boy. Um, tell me about your choice and, and why you chose it. Well, this book is uh, Emma by Jane Austen. And I think the big change happened in my life when I was about 14 and I started to read grown-up books for the first time. And I jumped straight from Alistair MacLean and sort of thriller writers like that. And then when I was about 14, we were given Pride and Prejudice to read. And all the boys in class, oh, Gould, sounds really boring. And it is a terrible title. I mean, really terrible title. But I took it away. I was at boarding school, took it away to my little cubicle and read it. And I found it absolutely thrilling. And then Emma was the sort of next step. I mean, you know, as a writer, you're looking, you're looking for a book that is perfect, that is technically perfect. Mm -hmm. And Emma is a technically perfect novel. There are no flaws in its construction. Uh, There are no, um, no shifts, no unwanted shifts of tone. It is like a Mozart symphony in which basically things are set out and then varied almost countless times. It's had the, the construction of Emma, if this doesn't sound too pretentious, is almost circular. When it comes to the end, you could almost just, it's like the arm could come off the record, it could just start all over again, but with slightly different things happening. We're going to hear a short reading now from Emma by Jane Austen. 
Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. She was the youngest of the two daughters of a most affectionate, indulgent father and had, in consequence of her sister's marriage, been mistress of his house from a very early period. Her mother had died too long ago for her to have more than an indistinct remembrance of her caresses and her place had been supplied by an excellent woman as governess who had fallen little short of a mother in affection. Sixteen years had Miss Taylor been in Mr Woodhouse's family, less as a governess than a friend, very fond of both daughters, but particularly of Emma. Between them it was more the intimacy of sisters. Even before Miss Taylor had ceased to hold the nominal office of governess, the mildness of her temper had hardly allowed her to impose any restraint, and the shadow of authority being now long passed away, they had been living together as friend and friend very mutually attached, and Emma doing just what she liked, highly esteeming Miss Taylor's judgment, but directed chiefly by her own. The real evils, indeed, of Emma's situation were the power of having rather too much her own way and a disposition to think a little too well of herself. These were the disadvantages which threatened Aloy to her many enjoyments. That was a reading from Emma by Jane Austen. So one of the reasons you chose that book as well as the sort of brilliant technical structure you said was because you always thought of Jane Austen as a bit of a rebel herself. Um, Were you a bit rebellious when you were younger as well? I was, yes. I mean, I was a very uh, shy child. And then I went to this rather tough little boarding school when I was about eight, where strangely enough, I was able to sort of function rather well because it was just such a closed off world. Uh, so and I was, you know, very competitive and very um, good, good little boy then. But when I went to my next school, Wellington College, when I was 13, I think, um, I didn't like that at all. And it, was, it wasn't at all a good school in Is those days. Is that when days. you were put two years ahead of where yes. you were supposed to be? I mean, that must have been quite difficult, especially for someone so young. Did it sort of make you a bit – did you have many friends as a result of that? I had or? no friends, no. Um, so I would go to class with boys two years older than me and who quite naturally sort of looked down on this little upstart. And so they never spoke to me. Uh, and the boys of my own age, I never saw in lessons because they were, you know, a year or two years behind. Uh, so I, I didn't really have any friends there at all. But, you know, I had a deeply antisocial side to me. So I wasn't really that fussed about it. Actually, <laughs> a lot of novelists, well, there's the stereotype of the novelist being the outsider. And actually a number that I've spoken to have said that when they were younger, they didn't have many friends or they saw themselves more as observers. Do you think that period helped with your writing later on? No, I, the, the, the way... It didn't help in in the sort of formation of a, of a personality or a way of living. It was a thoroughly unpleasant experience, and uh, I think a lot of nonsense is talked about the sort of character forming nature of bad experiences. I think, on the contrary, as a later book, Engleby showed um, too much unhappiness, too much, too many bad experiences actually warp your character. Um, but w- where Wellington was very good for me was. Um, that there was nothing to do in the evenings. Uh, you were on the sort of long corridor. I almost said wing. It was a bit like that sort of D wing of a prison. And you were you had to go into your little cubicle at seven, and that was it. You were allowed to slop out at eight thirty, I think, for ten minutes, and then you were banged up again. So did you uh, literally read all night? Yeah. So there was nothing else to do. Well, you had to do a bit of preparation for the next day's work, but that didn't take very long. So from about you know eight thirty onwards, you could either stare at the ceiling or, or read a book. 
you weren't allowed to watch television. Um, you weren't allowed to listen to a radio. There was no internet. So I read a huge amount. So in that sense, it was good. And then in my final year there, all the bad things I'm saying about Wellington, I should say, are very much of that time. It's a very different school now. It's a, a, actually a rather wonderful school, I think, now. Um, but And in my last year there, I was very well taught by three or four guys, teachers who were very, very interested in and very knowledgeable, I mean, true scholars in, in English. But then when you were at Cambridge later on after school, um, you've said as well that you were quite rebellious there. You went to two lectures in three years. Is, yeah. that, is that true? That is true, I'm afraid. Uh, two lectures in three years, it's not something I'm proud of at all. Um, here was this wonderful university um, and I didn't really, I didn't bring anything to it. I didn't give to it. Uh, what I might have done. Um, I mean, partly it was a, di a difficult time to be there. The early 70s, we were the last of a grammar school generation um, and before the comprehensives came in. And it was also the last of uh, essentially boys only. I mean, my college didn't go co-ed until three, four years after I'd left. Were you good with girls then? Or was, was that I a bit difficult? I didn't really know any girls then. Um, Oh, that's an exaggeration, of course. I mean, there were women's colleges there, um, but they were some way out of town. And the girls in them were, they were in a difficult situation, actually, um, because they were so curios, really. And I don't think they knew quite how to behave as well. Um, anyway, it was, I, I regret that I didn't um, do more and use what was there more and, and give more, which is why I've been quite a sort of keen old boy. I've done a lot for my old college in recent years, uh, largely out of a feeling of guilt, actually. And also because I like the college. It's a very good college. And did you do well in the end? Did you sort of knuckle down by the end? Well, I did uh, very well in my first year. And then I thought, oh, my God, um, you know, where is this going? And then I sort of downed tools completely. And I didn't do any work in my second year at all. And I didn't do very well in that exam. And then I just picked up a bit in the final year. And so I got a sort of two one or so okay degree. But was it that you felt unchallenged? Or was it more that you sort of were a bit anti-authoritarian at that time? I just was a very confused kid, you know. And actually, I now have two sons as well as a daughter, and it's a very difficult time for a male. It's much people talk a lot about adolescence, but that's it's really not very difficult. Kevin, the teenager stuff. I mean, that's quite easy, really. It just they're just bolshy and rude, but that's fine. But the sort of age of nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, when the neurodevelopment of the male brain is completing is really difficult. And, you know, boys, young men struggle a lot at that time. Do you mean yourself or your, your sons? Um, I mean, I did. And I think uh, they're, they're not too bad, my sons, but, you know, it's, it's not easy for anyone. In what way did you struggle? Finding out who I was, what I was supposed to be doing in the world, um, negotiating between authority uh, and the individual, jobs, work what it was all for and you know I just kept clinging to literature really as the this was the sort of this was the lifeboat and to me literature was it was something which represented um individual values the the value of the inner life over the outer one and something slightly rebellious still but at the same time it was respectable and it seemed to me that you know that if you could be as um, seditious as you liked as a writer, but you could still get knighted at the end of it. And so I thought, well, that's fine. I'm not going to be thrown into prison and I can do what I like this way. Um, and people will respect me at the end of it. It will be respectable as a career. 
that actually brings us on nicely to your second book choice of the day. Tell us a little bit about it. Uh, the second book I've chosen is The Rachel Papers by Martin Amis. Um, I suppose I must be about 20 when I read this. And it was basically just side-splittingly funny. Very, very crude, very rude. Uh, and it was the the young, the pretentious, over-literary young man's novel that ended the genre forever because no one could have done it as funnily, uh, as brilliantly with so much comic verve as he did. Is that what you were or what you wanted to be? I mean, oh, I strongly identified at that age with the main character in this book and I was just uh, awed by Martin Amos's sort of verbal ability which was essentially a sort of fusion of high and lowbrow, very grandiose, sort of slightly adolescent turn of phrase married to really quite ridiculously comic situations. And how do you, when you're in awe, as you just described, how do you deal with that as a writer? Does it boost you and you think, I could write an amazing novel like this and then it sort of spurs you on? Or does it make you feel a little bit intimidated? Well, it was very, it was very helpful to me because I thought, I mean, there's a terrible thing that happens to you when you're a young writer, which is that older people say to you, write about what you know, which is the worst advice ever given to anyone. Uh, The whole point about being a novelist is that you write about what you don't know. You can write about the future, the past, other countries, foreign countries, people of an age you've never been, of 80, people of the different sex to you, etc. That's what makes fiction alive. But people were muttering to me at that stage, I said I wanted to be a novelist. Well, write about what you know. And I thought, what do I know? And then I read Martin Amos's book and I thought, well, this guy's kind of completely cleaned up. And all sort of, you know, young adolescent pretentiousness is, is there. I mean, it, it, was, it was a tremendously good fun book, uh, but also very helpful to me because it made me think, right, I'm not going to do that then. This feels like a good moment to hear a reading from the Rachel Papers. Here it is. My name is Charles Highway, though you wouldn't think it to look at me. It's such a rangy, well-travelled, big-cocked name, and to look at, I'm none of these. I wear glasses for a start, have done since I was nine, and my medium-length, arseless, wasteless figure, corrugated ribcage and bandy legs gang up to dispel any hint of aplomb. On no account, by the way, should this particular model be confused with the springy frame so popular among my contemporaries. They're quite different. I remember I used to have to fold the bands on my trousers almost double and bulk out the seats with shirts intended for grown men. I dress more thoughtfully now, though, not so much with taste as with insight. But I have got one of those fashionably reedy voices, the ones with the habitual ironic twang, excellent for the promotion of oldster unease. And I imagine there's something oddly daunting about my face, too. It's angular, yet delicate. Thin long nose, wide, thin mouth, and the eyes. Richly lashed, dark ochre with a twinkle of singed auburn. Ah, how inadequate these words seem. That was a reading from the Rachel Papers by Martin Amos. So... We've talked a little bit about your journalism career already, but another of the outcomes of it was that that's where you met your wife, Veronica, yeah. um, when you were both working and she was your assistant at The Independent. Um, tell me a little bit about that, sort of how you came to meet and how the dynamic worked with you both, and essentially you being her boss. I worked as the literary editor with a friend of mine, Robert Winder, who was my deputy. And we persuaded the editor that we needed a secretary and they were rather reluctant to spend more money on it. So we agreed we'd share one with someone. But we were a bit late to the party and a large number of jobs had been given out. And then 
we did offer the job to a very glamorous young woman whose name I can't remember now. Anyway, there's a friend of mine called Ed Steen who was a foreign reporter rang up and said, we've got this most delightful young woman downstairs. But unfortunately, we've, you know, we've filled our job. Do you want to see her? And I said, well, I think I've filled my post too, but you can send her up if you like. So she came up and we chatted and she was charming and delightful. And she, although very young, she had worked for magazines during her university vacations. Anyway, the first person to whom we'd offered the job then couldn't make it, so we then called up Veronica and she came in and, and she did the job. Uh, and then after a bit, it was, a, it was a quite an enlightened organization in its, in its day and in its way, the independent. Um, I went off for a sabbatical after about a year. <laughs> I've been able to swing that one. Is that to write? Yeah, to write a book called The Fool's Alphabet. And Veronica was sent off to go and learn how to be a journalist working for a, a free newspaper, free magazine called um, London Portrait. Uh, and then she came back to the newspaper and worked on the magazine as a sort of commissioning editor. So that is how we met. And how did it work in terms of the dynamic? What I'm getting at is, does she read your copy now? And do you, does she take, do you take to her editing? Uh, she, she, I, I show her things to read first time. Yeah, she's the first person who reads them. She's a fantastically good editor in the sense of line by line. She's furiously pedantic grammatically. She has a brilliant eye for misprints, which I don't have at all. And do you talk a lot about your writing at home or do you sort of keep quiet when you're, you know... No, no, she refers to it as your funny little stories. Our house style is very, very much not, um, you know, reverential. I think there was a survey recently that said, was it, I think I've got stats here somewhere, I think it's either 40 or 60% of people's their dream job is to be a novelist. I mean, is it all it's cracked up to be? Well, I think the truth is it is. Um, when it's going well, I mean, it is completely. But you are euphorically happy if you if you have to spend a long time making sure that what that you're doing the right thing and that the task you're engaged in is capacious enough to occupy you intellectually, emotionally, imaginatively over a long period and really stretch you. And in a way that brings out the best in you, which will in turn bring readers into you. And, you know, these, these ideas and the, or rather these combination of ideas, you know, they don't come very, very often. So most of the time, you're searching for your next book. You're, you're creeping up on it. You're reading, you're writing, you're thinking, you're watching television, you're talking to people. And eventually something sort of crystallizes, some sort of constellation becomes visible in the darkness. Is it that obvious that it's happening at the time or is it more retrospective? No. So the, the moment at which a thought becomes an idea is it, sometimes it's so subtle you don't feel it. I'd like to talk a little bit about how that process went when it came to writing Birdsong. Um, you recently said that it was one of the most challenging novels you've ever written. I'm just wondering why that was and whether you had any doubts when you were writing it. Uh, I did have a lot of doubts about Birdsong because, first of all, I, I felt, do I really have the authority to presume to add something to the understanding of the experiences of these men? After all, the First World War, my, my gamble was that most people didn't know much about it. But some people know a lot about it, and it is taught academically. And also because veterans were still alive at the time I wrote it. So I was anxious about that. Um, and I was anxious about writing something that far back in history. But then I had a few sort of breakthrough moments about history and realizing that 
history isn't a sort of pageant that happened to other people in a different world. It is sort of, you know, umbilically connected to us in, in sort of flesh and blood and families and people and actually going to the Western Front with some veterans and standing in the mud with them where they had stood and literally holding their hands, you know, how old men like to sort of hold on to you sometimes. It connected me to their experience, their lives, in a way that it removed that curtain of history and it wasn't, I no longer st- thought about it as history. So that's I thought what gave it was about com- just experience. Exactly. So that's what gave you the confidence to sort of go ahead yeah. and think I am equipped to write this. Yes, but even so, when you come to it, when I sat down to write, you know, the very long sort of 40 pages describing the Battle of the Somme from inside the eyes of one man, you, you do take a bit of a deep breath. But you have to you have to trust yourself and you have to trust, you have to say to yourself, you know, I, I can do this. And it's it isn't rocket science. It is losing myself and sinking myself inside the skin of somebody else. And this is how it must have seemed. This is how it must have felt. And then little bits of research will help you. You know, you've read how astonishingly thirsty they were. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just bring that in at a moment. It sort of grounds it. And part of the thing about writing about historical events is to keep reconnecting them to the everyday experience of, you know, maybe a 14-year-old girl reading it who's you know, sort of miles away from anything she's experienced. But we've all felt thirsty. How do you feel talking about that book today? Because it was, it was written, what, sort of 25 years ago, and it's still the thing that people often mention when they first say your name, when they first think of you. I always think that even though it's a wonderful novel, you must feel a bit like a pop star who's, you know, got an amazing load of records, but there's just this one that, that people keep playing. It must drive them absolutely mad. Uh, the White Shade of Pale. I know, not really, because, um, you know, I've been fortunate. I've had, you know, other hit albums and, and, you know, in different styles about different subjects. I just remember how old I was. I was 39 when I wrote it, and it was quite a, it was a very good time in, in my life, but it was you know, financially quite precarious. Um, We had a baby and one more on the way. And I didn't really take anything for granted, but I felt felt very sort of emboldened by the challenge of writing the book, and I felt it's now or never. And I I wouldn't write that book now. I wouldn't, if I were to, I certainly wouldn't write it in that way. What do you mean? Well, it's written in a very, very direct, head-on style. And, you know, if in doubt more noise, more guns, more drama. It's very head-on, it's very operatic. Let's move on to your third choice of the day, which is um, a poem that you've chosen. Tell me a little bit about it and why you've chosen it. Um, This is Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold. The Victorians are funny people, but uh, I hadn't really read it. Well, I've read a hell of a lot of Victorian novels, but not that much poetry. Um, But when I came to write Human Traces, which is my sort of late Victorian book about um, the early days of psychiatry and psychoanalysis, I read a great deal about um, Darwin. But uh, this is all pretty interesting for um, human beings and for psychiatry because are we mad? Are so many people, are, are we so damaged and unstable because of the way in which was there some big genetic leap in our past? But it took me back to the Victorian period and what a sort of appalling impact um, the, the origin of species and the, and the world that it opened up had on society. People who thought that the world was only a few thousand years old and that God had created everything, then having to come to terms with the fact that it was hundreds of millions of years old and God had created nothing. I mean, this was a sort of national 
intellectual nervous breakdown. And Matthew Arnold um, in Dover Beach, he expresses some of the agonies. It's not that he's saying Darwin is wrong or that there is no place for science, but it's, it's a lament for a world. It's a lament for the human world, which had lasted for as long as humanity had been able to write, which is sort of sometime after Homer, until um, the 1860s, and had then just died. And how did the poem come to you? How did you come across it? I came across it at Cambridge, I suppose. Uh, you know, we, it was the week we did the Victorians, the Victorian poetry. But my wife goes to uh, poetry classes, although she's not a student age, just to sort of because she likes poetry every week. And they, they did Matthew Arnold one week, and she was very, very taken by it as well. So we talked about it a lot, and she sort of brought the poem back to me. Fantastic. And I think we're going to hear a reading from that poem now. The sea is calm tonight. The tide is full. The moon lies fair upon the straits. On the French coast, the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand, glimmering and vast, out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window, sweet as the night air, only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land. Listen, you hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high strand, begin and cease, and then again begin with tremulous cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness in. That was Sebastian Falk's reading from Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold. Um, so for the final part of the podcast, I want to talk about your book, Paris Echo, which is out this month. It follows two outsiders, an American historian called Hannah, who's working as a researcher in Paris, and she's still badly damaged from a breakup that happened previously, and also a runaway teenager called Tarek, who lives in Morocco and goes to explore Paris, where his late mother's from. But also woven between their stories are these brilliant testimonials from two women who lived in Paris under German occupation during the Second World War. But ultimately, despite all of these things going on, when I read it to me, the novel felt about one thing, in which was loneliness. And I don't know if that was your intention or if that's what you set out to write it as? Um, it's one of the themes, but it wasn't the primary theme in my mind. It's something which um, it came to me, really. It came out of the book as you write it, and this can happen. And sometimes you you have to look at these things and think, do I really want it to be about loneliness? Have I written about this before? I don't want it to swamp the book, but I think I just about kept it under control. It's like the sort of woodwind section coming in a bit strong and you think, hmm, is that all right? Are we all right with that? I think no, so. No, not yeah. at all. I think because they're such disparate characters, it's the one thing that binds them really, isn't it? Because you can't think of anyone more different than this completely free teenager who, you know, hops, he, he um, he's from Morocco and then he sort of hitchhikes his way to Paris. And then you've got this very uptight almost woman. And they're all so different. I think that their loneliness almost binds them all. Yes, I think there's something in that. Um, they they make common cause in a way. But I think what separates them is more important than what binds them. And what separates them is that Hannah tries to make her life, uh, make a personal life valuable for herself without being overwhelmed by her knowledge of the past and her sense of the interconnectedness of all things and, and her knowledge of history, to put it simply. I understand that you went to Paris yourself for two months back in 2016 for inspiration. Tell me a bit about that trip. I mean, did you find it? What did you do when you were there? I've never really gone about it this way before, um, but I just had this feeling that there was a book for me in Paris. And the only way that I could find it was by just going to live there. So that's what I Where did. Where did you live? What was your apartment like or um, was it a hotel? 
I stayed in various different places because it was slightly spur of the moment. I hadn't really planned much ahead. Uh, so Airbnbs, CD hotels, someone lent me a very nice flat for a bit. Um, and then I rented a flat in the 9 the ninth arrondissement of the Rue des Martyrs. And what did you do? Did you just wake up and sort of go and buy yourself a pan of chocolat and sort of no, wander? Don't do <laughs> uh, I did sort of structured wanderings and I, I hired a guide um, and I said to her, I want you to take me to the sort of bad parts of Paris or the bits that you've never, ever taken anyone to before. And initially she was a bit surprised. Uh, and, you know, we started off quite gently, old historic bits, not much known about. But I said, just take me take me to places that no tourists have heard of. So when people read this book and they say, oh, Paris, I know Paris very well, they're going to keep turning the page and saying, I've never heard of this place. What happens here? So 13th arrondissement, Chinatown, for instance, which is very unlovely, lots of tall buildings, not very houseman, not typical Paris at all. The banlieue, the suburbs where Tariq works in a fast food shop. Um People know about them, um, but not many people really go there because why would you? They're not very nice. Um, so there, and then we went to what I was told was one of the most hardline Muslim um, suburbs. Um, and I read, I think it was in the Daily Mail that, you know, there's a cafe there. They won't serve women. Everyone is really heavy place. Anyway, we went there. It was absolutely fine. And the chap couldn't have been nicer. Did you have friends there and people or were you, was it quite solitary? I didn't know anyone before I went. Um, but William Boyd, um, novelist, who's a friend of mine, had given me two or three people to ring up if, you know, might be fun to meet for dinner. But everyone's terribly busy. You know, the whole world is busy. But they said, well, I'm, you know, I'm out of town, but I'll be back one day. And eventually I met these and they were all charming. But the first month was brutally lonely, actually. Um, just before we get on to the reading from Paris Echo, I did have one other question I wanted to ask you. And that's about... Um the characters whose testimonials are written in the book. Is it Mathilde, Mathilde, Mathilde. Mathilde and Juliet? Mm. Um, how did you go about that? I mean, they're very unusual experiences of women in, in the occupation. How did you go about researching them? Uh, the research for this book was probably, it was just walking, 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 walking. Um, the history literally walking yeah, through Paris? Okay. literally walking around. Um, I had two, um, uh, two new knees put in after I got back. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, they um, had been worn out before. That's some research, some commitment yes, to, to the book. That's commitment, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I had done the basic historical research before um, for a book called Charlotte Grey, which I wrote in the mid-90s. So I, I knew about the occupation um, and I knew what had gone on. Um, I did some sort of refresher work. I went to see a German who runs a Franco-German um, school, uh, university, about to completely devoted to these years. I interviewed him for a bit. Uh, I went on a, a walking tour of Paris under the occupation with a guy who professionally does this. But the the, the stories of Mathilde and Juliette are... They're slightly different kinds of people. Mathilde is very rough and ready and Juliette is. They're both working class, but Juliette is definitely slightly more refined. Um, I just wanted those stories to bring in different aspects of what it was like for a young woman at that time. Uh, and the answer is, you know, not at all easy, actually. But one of the other things about history is that we talk about the occupation in capital letters and so on. But, you know, you do just wake up and you do just go to work. 
and you don't think of yourself as living in history within inverted commas. I mean, it's possible that people will ask us one day, you know, what was it like living in Brexit? And the truth is, it's just tremendously irritating. But, you know, it just didn't really stop your friendship and your eating and your drinking and going to work, does it? We're going to hear a reading now from Paris Echo. And could you tell me a little bit about the excerpt that you've chosen? In his journeys around Paris on the metro, Tarek is always seeing women whom he rather admires from afar. But there's one in particular called Clémence, um, who he follows because uh, she reminds him of a photograph he's seen in a book. And eventually she realises that this young man is following her. And at uh, the apartment building, she says to him, why don't you come over? Or she gestures. And he crosses the road and goes inside. Clémence said nothing as she walked ahead of me over a cobbled courtyard, in the far corner of which was an open door onto a stone staircase. There was no lift. I followed her up two flights where she unlocked a double door from the landing. We went into a hallway with a wooden floor, then a sitting room where she pointed me to a chair. She didn't come in, but I heard the sound of a kettle and china next door. The sitting room had a window over the courtyard and a sewing machine on a table. The furniture was old. There was no television or music player or Wi-Fi router or anything electronic. After a minute or so, Clémence came back and put down two china cups of clear tea and a bowl of sugar on a tray. She turned on two table lamps, but they didn't give much light. She'd taken off her coat and little hat, I noticed, as she sat down opposite me in her blue dress and her pointed knees in their honey-coloured nylon covering. She took a cigarette from a small box on the table, lit it, and blew out some smoke. She was sitting forward with her elbows on her thighs. At last she spoke. Putting her head on one side, she said, What do you want? I was shocked. She spoke in French, and what she'd said was, Qu'est-ce que tu veux? Not the vous that you'd expect on first meeting, but the familiar tu. She was either being rude, or she was treating me as an infant. That was a reading from Paris Echo by Sebastian Folks. So, Sebastian, I've got one final question before we finish today, if you don't mind. You turned 65 this year. You've written 18 books in total. Do you ever envisage yourself retiring and just, I don't know, playing cricket, going on cruises? Um, or do you think you'll keep on writing forever? Um, I don't envisage myself going on cruises very much. No. Not a nice P&O to uh, the Caribbean? <laughs> No, um, I think that, I mean, I quite like having reached the sort of OAP age because it makes me think that if I want to, I can stop. And anything now from now on is a sort of bonus. Um, but the truth is, it's not very old for a writer. I mean, you think of Philip Roth didn't really get going until he was 70. And I have a lot of ideas and I, I want to write for the theatre and I want to write adaptations, screenplays for films. And I want to keep on trying to write fiction until I write something that I'm satisfied with. And you haven't to date? I can do better. Sebastian Fox, thank you very much for sharing your life in books. Thank you. In our next episode, Laura is joined by the best-selling British novelist Jojo Moyes, who talks about writing, therapy and her reading habits as a young woman. My parents always had tons of books, but I read my way through everything. I read the Good News Bible all the way through to The Joy of Sex. Anything that I could see on their bookshelves, I just, I read it. I probably read way beyond my age range from a very early age. I hasten to say that The Joy of Sex thing came much later. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say That's Jojo Moyes, next up on My Life in Books. If you haven't yet subscribed to this series, please do. And if you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a star rating or a review on iTunes. 
It helps other people to find the podcast. Thank you.